You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. So today we are recording a special one-off podcast for World Mental Health Day. And today on Mad World, I am so thrilled to have the lovely Scarlett Curtis. Welcome! Hi! Scarlett, Yes. we start each podcast, as you probably know, by asking, how are you really? Right now, how are you? Right now, I'm good, actually. I'm a bit tired and a tiny bit all over the place but I think this I don't know if you have this but this quite nice thing happens when you've been really anxious for a long time and then actually at the last few months I've been quite anxious and down where when you're not in that place you just feel so proud of yourself and happy so like I've had a really busy week and I am a bit tired but mostly I'm just like you're feeling fine like how great is that like a few years ago you'd have been feeling awful yeah that's sort of like what the relief as well right because I also find that when I'm not in a bad place Mm. it can be quite difficult to remember how bad the bad place was so it's really nice to feel that relief because it reminds you to keep try and keep yourself well completely and I think because I've just come out of it again I've still got that high and then once you've been good for a few months it definitely fades and then you're like, you forget and then, yeah. Now, the reason you're quite busy at the moment is because you have this new book out that you have curated. Yeah, I love that word. Not um, called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, Amazing Women on What the F Word Means to Them. Now, Scarlett, you've kind of written huge amounts in it, but you've got amazing people like Helen Fielding, Kira Knightley, Deborah Francis White, Dolly Alderton, I can't pronounce Sasha, Sasha Ronan, Charlie Craggs. And Zoella, you've got like a whole host of people to write about feminism and what it yes. means to them. So how many have you got? 52? 52 women. 52 yeah. women. One for every week of the year. And oh, Emma Watson as well, of course. Yeah. Just, you know, Casual. call her up. Okay. Casual <laughs> drop. Um, and I, I wondered if this book came out of quite a dark place for you. So it's a beautiful colour pink, but it, it definitely came out of the dark. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, a few years ago, did you ever imagine that this, I'm holding, you can't see this as a podcast, but <laughs> that this this would be something that you'd be able to do? Like, never in a million years. Like, it's not even just, I mean, I think even two years ago, I didn't imagine this was something I could ever do. But, a, like, five years ago, 
I didn't even imagine I could be up at this time in the morning. You know, okay. I didn't even imagine I could be sitting here with you. Like, it's so far from anything I ever thought I was ever going to do. So tell us a bit about what y- your experience, because you had a chronic illness. And, and in the intro to this book, you explain that, you know, when you were 15, you didn't mm. know you were a feminist. But the, the thing that made you realise that you were a feminist and that you needed to stand up generally for women was how you were treated when you went to doctor's surgeries. Yeah. And how your and because your mum was usually the person with you and how you struggled to get a correct diagnosis. Yeah. Can you, so, can you talk through like start right from the beginning right if that's the beginning. okay. Sorry. Um, Just take you back to the most miserable time of your life, Scarlett. <laughs> um, this is really like therapy. So when I was four up until the age of fourteen I was like very normal teenage girl. Definitely didn't think I was feminist thought that was something we'd sorted out like now that we've got Beyonce we're fine yeah and then when I was 14 I had a pretty standard back operation but what we now know is something went wrong in the back operation and I was left in chronic pain for two and a half years I had to drop out of school I couldn't really walk I was in a wheelchair or just in like masses and masses amount of pain so that was like 14 to almost 17. Which Why is did you such... need the back operation? So I had scoliosis okay. and it was an operation to fix the scoliosis. But normally you recover within three weeks. And most people do. So this isn't like a kind of scary thing if you yeah. have to have the Don't operation. Freak out. This was a real freak thing that happened to me. But one of, they put screws in your spine and one of the screws was going too close to my spine. Ooh. So I was just in masses and masses amount of really, really sharp, horrible pain. And we... You know, it was me and my mum mostly going through it. And basically the doctors didn't believe that I was in pain. They thought I was too close to my mum was something that we got a lot. And my brain had concocted some kind of thing to keep me close. The weird thing was I was almost diagnosed as being crazy before I was crazy. I definitely became crazy afterwards. But they would tell me that I didn't know that I'd made up the pain but I had made up the pain. It was a really weird time and it was really psychologically mad because I was being told that to get better, I could never be in too much pain. That was one of the treatments. So it was like, you always have to be pushing yourself into this pain because the pain's fake. Right, so, so, you're, so basically you were being told that what you were feeling, you weren't feeling. Yeah. Which so, is a pretty mad, is a pretty awful yeah, experience. And, and I think there are different ways of dealing with it. And, you know, some people might get really angry and turn it all outwards. But I was 15. I'd been told to trust authority. You know, when you're that age, well, most people, like, you think that if there's a fire, firemen will come save you. If there's a robbery, the police will come save you. And if you're ill, doctors will help you. So I fully believed them. And I turned everything inwards. And I think I just kind of thought, that it was my fault what had happened. I thought that I'd ruined my family's life. I thought all this stuff, I just internalised it all. And I was, you know, this 15-year-old girl that was constantly having to push herself into pain who thought that she destroyed her family's life. So it was really a recipe for messing up a teenage girl's brain if there ever was one well you were just talking about that I noticed you were like rubbing your face (laughs) almost no but it's really interesting how we kind of like I notice I do things to kind of because sometimes even just talking about these experiences can be like really you know you just feel like you have to you have to kind of stroke yourself to go it's okay I also don't know if you feel this but sometimes I feel bad about like putting it on to other people I feel kind of fine talking about it but then 
anything to do with physical or mental health. Mm. But then other people get so freaked out and upset that you almost end up comforting them yeah. and being like, it was fine, it was fine. So so you you know, you know didn't you basically didn't go to school for how many years? Yeah, so I didn't really go to school for two and a half years then. I actually ended up getting four GCSEs, which I'm very proud of, part-time at a kind of college that I would go into for like two hours a day for a year within that. But yeah, apart from that, I wasn't really in school. So you did, I remember you had a blog called The yes. Teen Granny because you, you know, you were at home. I, I read, I was reading some of them. I remember reading them at the time, but, you know, you were talking about how you're lazy and how, you know, and, and I thought, you know, so often we, we tell ourselves that we're lazy when actually our bodies are just telling us to slow yeah. down and they, that, that it needs help, which is clearly what was going on with you. You know, we were just talking about my age and I think, you know, everyone always says now that, like, I've got an insane work ethic for my age or whatever. And when I was doing that blog, I was mad about it. And I was 16, it was a knitting blog, but I would write myself these schedules every single day of, like, take photos, knit rabbit, like, photo <laughs> the rabbit, write up the pattern for the rabbit. Because you didn't want people to think you were it being... It was all like, from it... that. It was mm. all from this, like, I really internalised what they were saying and... I think I thought I had to somehow make up for it by being as productive as I could be or sort of showing that I wasn't just, that I didn't want what was happening to me, which, yeah, is a weird place for that to come from. Because you're 23 now. Yeah. And I should also say that, like, I, I mean, I know your family quite well. Your cousin is, this is like, conf- this is like, confession, you know, confession time. <laughs> Why your, do we sound so comfortable? <laughs> your cousin is is one of my best friends, and um, but your you know you come from your family are very so your mum is Emma Freud yeah. and your dad's Richard Curtis, film director, and they created Red Nose Day together, and you're one of four children, are you? Yeah, you've got three, three brothers. And you are, you know, your household is very, it's kind of like, it's upbeat, it's positive. You know, your mum's a Freud. Do you know what I mean? Like, there is a lot of understanding of mental health and emotional well-being in your household. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it feels a bit like you had all the support. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, so the, the next part of the story is that I got physically better when I was 17 and a half, which was incredible. We figured out what was going on. Presumably but, only through, like, the prolonged support of your mother. Yeah, so father. my mum... I, I mean, my parents were incredible throughout the whole thing, and they are, as you said, like, the most understanding, joyful people And they always ever. believed you. Always. always believed me, always supported me, always kept on searching to find what was wrong. But I think it was hard. The other side of what you said is, like, it's a very happy, joyful household. And I think I definitely felt for a long time like I was the stain Yeah, on you the were, family. like, dragging everyone yeah, down. Yeah, I was yeah. like, without me, they'd be, you know, fine and happy. And obviously that's none of that came from them, but I think you do feel that sense of guilt when you're going through something. Mm. But also, while I say that, I, d- I didn't mean that in a, you know... No, no, no. Like, this kind of thing can happen to anyone yeah. but also um, what I wanted to say was I, I love how supportive your parents were because I think there are a lot of certainly I know the experience I had was that my parents were very frustrated with me and I think increasingly that is the more traditional response mm-hmm. is to be frustrated I remember doing an event once 
And this woman stood up and she said, I think my daughter, my, I've got a teenage daughter who says she's depressed. I think she's making it up for attention. Oh and I'm God. like, well, maybe give her some attention then. Do you know what I mean? I would have liked birthdays too. And I think that often you hear a lot of that people go, how can I, what do I do? What do mm. I do? My child seems really unhappy. And I'm like, just love and support yeah. them and let them know that you're there for them. Don't, I mean, does yeah. that, is that for you? And something, I mean, that's everything. And I think one of the reasons I started writing about mental health was because my family couldn't have been more supportive and it was still so hard and it was just thinking oh my god if I feel this much shame and awfulness around what I'm going through with this level of love and support imagine what it's like without but I also think something me and my mum got to and which took a while but I really believe is like the answer if you have a loved one going through this is that she had to be my mum and not my doctor So it wasn't about her trying to fix me or trying to find a solution or trying to make me do things that she thought would make me better. It was just about her loving me. And it's exactly what you're saying. You need that person in your life that is going to love and support you. And then you need doctors that do the medical things. What must it, you know, when you, you must have felt, I mean, comparison is a thief of joy, but while you're 15, 16 and all your friends are presumably out, you know, yes, they're studying, but they're mm. also doing the things that 15, 16 year old girls do. Yeah. And, and you are at home having to knit rabbits, rabbits. Yeah. Which, is, which is not, by the way, to be sniffed at. I think, no, it's not. And I actually still knit rabbits to this day. <laughs> um, it was really hard. And again, I think it took its toll on my brain. Like, I definitely disconnected completely. I stopped believing that it was ever going to go away. And I stopped thinking about what my life would be like if it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And I remember I used to do this thing, and now when I look back, it like makes me feel so sad, but I would only let myself think about moving without pain when I was in the shower. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't think about it all day. You know, I'd super block it out my head, and then when I was in the shower, I was allowed to, while I was in the shower, think about what it would feel like to run or to move, or to like dance, or to do any of those things. And it would be the most painful and most amazing feeling. And then I would get out of the shower and I wasn't allowed to think about it again until I got back in. So I definitely developed all these kind of mind tricks to get through it. And eventually we just, you know, we saw more doctors than I think is humanly possible throughout those three years. And eventually we saw one who said, It had been two years, which meant that my spine had fused, so we could take out the metal work that was in there. Um, So we always knew that time was coming. And then he said, you know, I think it would be worth taking it out just in case it relieves the pain. And so I had the operation, took it out, and then I just remember waking up. And obviously I was in so much post-operative pain, but I just remember being like, it's gone. Like the, The pain that I've had for the last two years is gone. So... Yeah, and then... How did that feel? Because, I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, people talk about mental health and physical health, mm-hmm. but really the two are, are just entwined. You know, I think that one's job as a mental health campaigner is done when people don't talk about mental and physical health anymore. They just yeah. talk about health. And I love you, that. you hear a lot about people in chronic pain who are driven miserable by it. You just so talk through that. It was really tough, and I think it's only when you, like, look back on it that you can see, but... Because I'd been told that the pain was coming from my brain for so long, I'd done so much throughout those years not to seem crazy or sad or anything going on in my head because we had to try and keep convincing people that it was all in my body. So 
I couldn't let show that it was affecting my head. And I think I was incredibly resilient and incredibly strong and always quite like chirpy, you know, obviously not to my parents and when I was at home, but outwardly I was always kind of fine. Or made it seem like I was fine. And obviously for that whole time I thought, when the pain is gone, I'm going to be the happiest, most incredible person in the whole world. And, you know, you'd read these stories about people that got better and then like ran marathons and moved to Africa and like gave and saved the world and also like and then I even talked to people and they were like every day is a gift mm-hmm. since and I was like I'm ready for my every day is a gift life like it's going to be amazing and at first it was great and not being in pain was incredible and I went back to school six months later to try and do my A-levels and then it was about five months of every single day just feeling worse and worse and worse and worse and that actually of anything that I went through was almost the hardest because I felt that was the point I hated myself the most because I was like you have done the impossible like you have gotten through two and a half years of pain you've gone out of the pain and now you can't even smile Mm -hmm. and you wake up every morning wanting to go back to sleep and like what is, I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe that I wasn't dancing on ceilings and yeah. running marathons. And I felt worse and worse. And then I started having panic attacks. And then I started not being able to get out of bed. And then eventually I dropped out of school again. And then it was another about two years until I was able to leave the house again. We eventually realised it was PTSD and that that was fueling depression and anxiety and and that's what really, whenever I talk about it, makes me say for sure that mental health is as much of a hindrance as physical health because there was nothing wrong with my body anymore and I was still stuck in that bedroom and I was still unable to walk around the block this time without having a panic attack, like mm. whereas before it was without screaming in pain. And then it was very hard. That was when I also really noticed, I think, the stigma of mental health compared to physical health because when I was in pain I could explain it to people Mm. and when I was crazy that was when I truly shut everyone out of my life. How close did you come to like you know obviously the thing of fully shutting out Mm. um did you did you ever feel suicidal? Yeah definitely I think there are levels of it aren't there like I think there's the level where you're sort of thinking about it a lot and then there's the level when you look back when you're like oh that was the day when it actually could have happened. And I had about two of those days. Really? Yeah, which is scary and also just shows you how, you know, how serious. What happened on those days? So what happened was I was back in London for two years, sort of unable to leave the house. I was in a treatment centre, like a day treatment centre for about a year Mm -hmm. where I wouldn't stay the night, but I'd go every day. And just sort of just trying, I would go up to, we. I grew up, in Suffolk and I would I just wanted to be alone I couldn't handle any kind of social interaction Mm -hmm. and I would go up to Suffolk with my dog and my cat um, who saved my life and I genuinely wouldn't be alive without them Mm -hmm. I would go up to Suffolk with my dog and my cat and just be alone for a whole week and it would be like this pause on everything it would be such a relief and just walk along the beach and swim in the sea and I actually remember this day which is a really sad story but I'd swim in the sea every day and my dog would come and sit on the beach and it was like October so it was no one was there 
and she hates the water and mm-hmm. hates as if she's a tiny fluffy multipoo and you know they always know what you're going through and that you're not doing well and I was just swimming and she was just watching me on the beach and then I obviously just got a bit too far and I just saw this look of resolve come into her face and she just stepped into the sea and started swimming towards me mm. and she's never gotten in before and it was like that was a big moment but but so then two a year two more years in London and then I think a lot of my PTSD was triggered by being in the room that I'd been ill in and then mm. the house that I'd been in and the place and so I made the insane insane decision of Moving to New York. Yeah, that was. <laughs> so, yeah, I finally, I, I'm just, I always, I like listening, and I just that loneliness and the like, the desolation mm-hmm. of like not wanting to like. It's not like you want to die; you just don't want to live. Yeah, thing. It really comes across, and it makes sorry, <laughs> no, make me feel I'm a bit sorry. emotional. No, no, don't apologize. I just, I, I'm just, you're not sitting there thinking, is she okay? So you moved to New York to go to NYU, didn't you? Yeah. So I took my. I only had three GCSEs and I took my SATs from my rehab centre, mm-hmm. which was a funny moment. <laughs> and then I went and actually my first year in New York was when it got the darkest that it got, I think. And that was when I had... And it's funny because you do... I always thought I needed to be alone. And then I think when I was there, it was just too alone. And I, I just do remember there was just this day when I was like, oh, I really, really don't want to do this anymore and I think there's almost that feeling of I think I felt at that point like I tried everything I was like I've moved here Mm. you know I've restarted my life I just it's been so long of being ill and I was like it's just not I don't think it's ever gonna go what made you pull through that moment I it was I called my best friend who throughout all of this he you know, my parents were incredible, but it was him who really like saved my life. He's my parents' age, and he, you know, we've got a very unconventional friendship. But he just he saved my life in so many ways. And he, I just called him, and I never called people. I never even texted people. I find I still find like communication quite hard whenever I'm in a funny place. I get a bit overwhelmed by it, and I just called him, and he just talked to me all night and then I went to bed connection um, is like the thing yeah isn't it? that thing that because you because that kind of illness wants you alone it wants you isolated yeah because then you can tell yourself that yeah then you you're more likely to tell yourself that it wouldn't you know it's not going to be okay that you're not yeah you know that you you are a freak you should be alone you know mm. what I mean you should yeah the thing that I find really hard and I still think about this a lot is like when it's in your brain, the thing operating you is the thing that's ill. One of the things I'm kind of trying to unpick now is the total mistrust I have of my own brain. Mm-hmm. I just don't trust myself mm. at all because my thoughts have been so insane yeah. and so toxic and have led me down such awful paths that I sometimes feel like I, I don't know if anything is trustworthy. Do you feel like, I feel like, and I've certainly only recently 
started to to realize that basically I feel like my brain was wired wrong. Yeah. So you know when you see uh, like bodyguard, everyone was watching, yeah. and the bomb disposal guy comes yeah. in, and they're always like, put the red wire where the yellow wire, you know. Yeah. And if you get it wrong, it's all going to go wrong. And I feel like it's my brain. I know. And I feel like if um, and we're holding the DMS. Yeah, the DMS. DMS. Maintain pressure on the, <laughs> DMS. On the DMS. If anyone's not watched Bodyguard, I apologize for that. But I feel like if I want to do something then I probably shouldn't do it. Yeah, that's how I and feel. And if I don't want to do something, then I probably should do yeah. it. And it's like, oh, God, it's so confusing. because so We talk about following our gut. And I'm like, my gut wants to... If I follow my gut, I'm walking straight I'm you know, so glad into you're the underground. I've tried to explain this to people, and it's no one else gets it. And it's like, I don't know what to trust. I, mm. And it leaves you pretty paralysed sometimes. Mm. Because because we are all told to We've kind got of, a crazy person in charge. Yeah, <laughs> you're all told to kind of do what feels right. And I'm like, yeah, but what feels right? Like, for me, instinctively, yeah. what feels right is to go home and hide. Same. Yeah, isolate yeah. always. And, but, and then part of me thinks, actually, that's okay. Like, it's okay to want to do that. Mm. But So I'm like, what is... Which part of me is correct here? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's learning when to push yourself and when to not. Yeah. And I think that is... through all of this is the thing I have struggled with the most is like often I would push myself and then I would be having panic attacks and wouldn't get out of bed for a week and then often I would not push myself and I'd go up to Suffolk and not speak to anyone for two weeks and it was like well where is that middle line Mm. what is the answer and you can you take a friend with you to Suffolk I'll come with you to Suffolk (laughs) (laughs) but you'd get people that would say you just have to push you just have to push that's how I got out of it and then you get people that would say you just have to be kind to yourself that's how I got out of it and it's hard I think for me it's ended up being a balance and a middle place but also having that person you know you can call up yeah so your best friend I'm not going to ask you who he is because you probably don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would steal him. Really? Is yeah, he not well-known? No, no, no. He's oh. just... He's he's like the most girlfriend. When I was going through my um bad point, he texted me every single day for two years. And I couldn't really text and I would only reply, you know, to one in 20 texts. But he never missed a day for two was years. Your friend, and that, that just like letting someone know... That was the greatest thing anyone's ever done for me was those texts. Even if Even if you don't reply that's what I say yeah, to friends just, just keep it going just yeah. let them know that you're you're there if they yeah. need you yeah I think people think they have to do huge things but it was mm. that that got me through that thing that you said you you didn't your mum needs to be your mum and not your doctor yeah and it exactly. can be the same with friendship yeah so you sorry I'm like oh I feel like we could sit here for like five hours <laughs> talking. this book presumably this was kind of born out of that quite bleak time. I mean, time. completely. So that day that I got to my worst, and what's so funny, I don't know if you've heard this, but people would say you hit rock bottom, and mm-hmm. I felt like I hit about 200 rock bottoms. Yeah, 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 like definitely. every week I'd be like, this is it, great, rock bottom. You kind of start Up to get used here. to the rock yeah. bottom. You're like, this is just a comfortable <laughs> place like, to be oh, hanging out. it goes out. lower, there's another cave. Yeah. Um, Who knew? <laughs> but that day for me really was my rock bottom, and two weeks later I started... My first, I'd written freelance since I was about 15 because of the blog, but started my first like real office job and it was at an organisation called Global Citizen. Mm-hmm. And they organise these incredible music concerts when they link it to activism and action and get okay. politicians to make dedications at the concerts to make the world a better place. And that was the moment that my whole life changed. You know, 
I was at such a low point and I was such a shell of a human. And being in an environment where every single person there was there because they wanted to make the world a better place. It was everything I needed. And from then I went on to, I worked there for a year and then I worked for another activism organisation called Project Everyone for two years. And I started my own feminist activist collective called The Pink Protest, right. which we've now been doing for about 18 months. And that's you, Grace Campbell. Yeah. And then we've got a whole network. We did the free periods protest. And Amika George. Amica George, yeah. yeah, which was amazing. And we do a lot of campaigns for young women. You know, I think I didn't know that activism and feminism were going to be my like antidepressant or my way out of this but I think I hadn't had a purpose for so long mm -hmm. and I hadn't known and I had again this mistrust of my own brain I really didn't trust that I could have fun mm -hmm. so like whenever people would say like you need to get some friends you need to go out to bars I would find I'd try and I'd find it impossible <laughs> and I'd make me cry and I'd you know spend a week revving up to go to a bar for a pub quiz and then hate it and get anxious and come over and panic do you, so, do you drink no not really, not really. Yeah, I didn't think you, you were more of a baker than a drinker yeah do you think that's like there's two types of people yeah, in this baker world and a drink, knitter or drinkers yeah and then it was everything it was the thing that made me happy like for the first time in my life I felt like I could or the first time since I was 14 I felt like I could wake up at seven in the morning and stay up till 10 and go out and I went on a trip to DC and I hadn't been you know anywhere like that before we went for a political festival and I was just so and all, I was just doing like random little social media things but I just felt like I was a human again and I mm -hmm. felt like I knew why I was meant to be here and still to this day like you know I still struggle with all these things and I still find having fun quite hard but you just said that you just said that you just come out of a period of, yeah, yeah. A low period. Yeah, definitely. So the place I'm at now, it kind of comes in waves. Yeah. And it's almost like seasons, but yeah. they're like shorter. And it's definitely not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. But it's basically just still the PTSD. And if, you know, something will happen or I don't really know, but I'll just fall back into it. And it will be like a bit of a fog goes over my whole head and my whole life. And suddenly... I'm waking up and everything's hard again mm. and I'm having panic attacks again and I'm you know that feeling when you're just like everything you do is hard and mm -hmm. everything you do is a struggle and complicated and the thing I get which is almost the reverse of what you were saying is when I go back into that place I forget I've ever been out of it so yeah. I just think that that's life and then I start thinking well why am I doing any of the things I'm doing and I want to quit everything and, you know. It's so hard. Like, you know, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Like, when you're out of it, it's hard to remember that you were in it. Yeah. And then when you're in it, it's hard to remember that you were ever out of yeah. it. Yeah. Like, I, I, too, have just come out of, like, a summer of, like, fucking... Sorry, shouldn't swear. Mm -hmm. like, but really hard. And I, Yeah, and I, my and summer was just hell. It was the whole summer and it was horrid. <laughs> we should have just hung out together. <laughs> but, you know, you think you're alone. Mm. You know, you, you feel alone. And you, as you say, you wake up and it's like... I just sometimes would take, like, a, a super strong antihistamine to put yeah. myself back to sleep I've again. I've done that a lot. Once they took my kid to school. But, and know. what's hard about when you do get a lot better, which I am, and I've got, you know, a job now and commitments and lots of people in my life who I love is that when it used to happen I would get low and I'd have nothing in my life and I'd mm. go to Suffolk and I wouldn't get out of bed for a week and now you have a life and you know you've got 
a child and a husband and you just it's a I think it leads to these feelings of guilt mm. and sort of the whole summer I just felt like I was letting everyone in my life mm-hmm. down I felt like I was letting my work down I felt like I was letting my family down I felt like I was letting my friends down and I felt like all I actually wanted to do was get into bed and not get out mm-hmm. and I think the thing that I did this summer was just get through every day and my therapist kept saying like it will go you've been through this before like it will go and I was like I don't believe it will but, yeah, but whatever, when's it gonna go I'll just get through the days could you let me know is it gonna go in the next 10 yeah. minutes and then suddenly <laughs> it just went and mm. it's you know but I think that's a really good tip like take each day as it comes yeah because it's like you say I think it's like do like t- even tiny things feel really hard yeah and it does lift after a while it does and it always will and it just takes always 10 times longer than you think it's going to. <laughs> what What are your kind of tips and tricks for, you know, helping yourself now? Like, what, what do you do on a daily basis to try and keep your kind of defences up, so yeah. to speak? So it's been, I think I always thought, we always say in my house that our whole family likes magical thinking. So we always mm-hmm. think there's going to be one thing and then everything's going to be fixed. So I thought one day I was going to, like, find something that would just be the thing and then I'd never be sad again and it's actually been so many things I'm on a really great anti-anxiety and antidepressant I have a really weird metabolism for drugs and then I've tried properly I think about 15 different anti-anxiety and antidepressants and none of them have worked and this is the first one I found that just it doesn't fix me but it takes a little edge off Mm -hmm. that means I can help myself more I spent about five years hating anyone that told me I should do yoga like (laughs) literally like I just hated yoga with this weird passion and then about a year and a half ago I was going through a really really bad anxious spell and I'd done a few yoga classes and I was like this is interesting I kind of get it and I made this decision to do try and do yoga every day Mm -hmm. and some days that would be an hour class and some days it would be like 10 minutes or 15 minutes online And I did it every day for a year. And I genuinely think it changed the shape of my brain. Mm -hmm. Like that, I feel so silly and annoyed at myself when I say it. But yoga has been huge for me just in terms of, I don't know, restructuring the way Mm -hmm. I think. And and also just because I had so much weird stuff in my body because of being in pain. It sort of made me like forgive my body for putting me through so much. And then just being nice to myself, I think is the thing I am so still to this day like I'm so horrible to myself and blame myself for everything and I think that's all I'd say if you're going through this is like just be kind to yourself I just wanted to read this bit from your book and it kind of like it really resonated with me you said there is no perfect feminist the phrase itself is an oxymoron feminists thrive on imperfections they turn weakness into strength and vulnerability into power they take broken systems and find ways to turn the cracks into opportunities and they take broken girls and find a way to make them feel whole again i've spent my whole life as i think so many women have feeling like what i had to offer wasn't enough to justify my presence I have spent years feeling not clever enough, not pretty enough, not cool enough, not fun enough, and generally not enough to measure up to what I thought a person should be. I will not spend my life feeling not feminist enough, and neither will you. You were born like we all were, with the power inside you to make the world a better place. Take this book and use it as a weapon. Give it to a friend, give it to an enemy, rip out your favourite page and pin it on your wall. What you do next is up to you, whether you start a movement or join Girl Up, 
which this book is in collaboration with, or simply decide to send a nice text to your mum saying thank you. <laughs> it's all enough. It's all brilliant. It's all something. Whatever you take from this book, whatever you do next, it's enough. I really like, it just made me think that it just kind of summed up purposely that kind of struggle all women have. Like mm. there's always something more. Like, like, yeah. it's like we don't think about what we are doing. We think about what we're not doing. Yeah. And it's like, be kind to yourself. And I think like, honestly, this is a bit of advice. Look into feminism as a form of self-help. Because for me, reading about feminism and talking to other feminist activists and understanding it more has helped me unpick so many of the things that are at the real heart of a lot of my mental health struggles, you know. And it's everything that you do around body positivity does that for so many women. And I think there are these things that are really overlap between the way that women are told to feel about themselves and then how that feeds into our mental health. And it for me, I've never read a self-help book and I've read a lot of feminist <laughs> books and it's been my self-help book. So I'd I'd have a think about it. It's interesting. We were talking before we started recording this, we were talking about how people nowadays, it feels like young people are a lot wiser. And I think in part that is because we are exploring this stuff. Yeah. And we are not, you know, we are standing up against traditional oppression mm. and all of the ways that we have been made to feel. Yeah. You know, like if you look at Me Too, you look at women standing up against male violence mm. and, you know, all of this is... Really, yeah, Feminism completely. is an act of self-care, as you say. Yeah, and I think the rates of anxiety are so much higher in young girls than they are in young boys. Mm. And I think this is obviously mental health can affect anyone, but there are things in society that really put young girls at risk of falling into these traps of anxiety and self-hatred and you are not good enough yeah exactly we're literally told that and the way we're all meant to feel about our appearance and everything and also just feel in competition with each other everything is pitted against our mental health Mm. so it can be a good way to arm yourself against that when you talk about appearance, which we always say appearances don't matter, and of course they don't really, it's what's inside that matters. But what is interesting, and I didn't know until I read your until I read this book, is that there is a certain type of pink which actually, if you look at it, will calm you down. Was it Baker Miller? It's called Baker Miller Pink. Baker Miller Pink. Yeah. yeah. And it was invented by an insane scientist in the seventies and he did all these experiments and realised that this specific shade of pink, and it's only this shade of pink, which the book cover is in, that yeah. shade of pink. So um, that's another reason to buy the book. Yeah. It will make um, you feel less violent. It would make people calm down and feel less aggressive and violent. And he used to go into prisons and paint prisons this colour. And, I mean, according to his studies, it would like greatly reduce the hostility and violence in the prison. So I've decided that that's a metaphor for the patriarchy and how pink can help take down the aggression of the patriarchy. But that is funny because for me as well, as I've been saying, very bad PTSD and one of the things that helped me get out of it was dyeing my hair pink because every time I looked in the mirror, I saw the girl that had been through all this horror that I'd been through. And then one day I didn't tell anyone I was going to do it and I just went to a salon and it took seven hours and they bleached my whole head and dyed it all pink. And every time I look in the mirror, it makes me happy. I, I would love to be able to dye my hair pink. How, hair pink, yeah. sorry, pear hink. Hair pink. <laughs> How much maintenance does it involve? I've kind of got it down now where it's actually, I basically just go once every six weeks. Okay, that's all right. Yeah. 
Okay. And also, you've got blonde hair. It would be way easier. Well, no, I don't have blonde hair. Yeah. I mean, not you naturally. See, you're already doing the first step. <laughs> you just need to add pink onto it. I'm already, I'm already spending hours at a mm. hair salon. But this is important. Little things make you happy yeah. and help your help your mental health. Oh, Scarlett, I've so enjoyed that conversation. I could carry. How long have we been chatting for, Kim? Nearly forty-five minutes. Oh wow. gosh. Apologies, everyone. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I just, I think you're great. And I'm really sorry that you, you know, you had to go through what you went through. But as you said, you took your experience and you've turned it into an opportunity. And that's awesome. And we can all do that in our lives. You know, you don't, you know, we can all take negatives and turn them into positives, I think. Um, thank you. And also just thank you for doing this podcast because it's helped me so much in so many ways over the past year and I think you're amazing no, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get a bit emotional again so Scarlett thank you for this coming and doing this special one off Mad World podcast I should say that we have um, we have another podcast Upper Belts which we'll be launching in the new year in case anyone's wondering what we've been doing I've been off having a depression <laughs> nice <laughs> me too so you know sadly mental health gets in the way of mental health podcasts but we're back feminists don't wear pink and other lies amazing women on what the F word means to them is out now and available to buy in all good bookshops and bad bookshops yep. <laughs> not that there's such thing as bad bookshops and Scarlet's wisdom is there every day for you to see if you follow her on Instagram which is at Scar Curtis yes oh my god I'm stalking oh, you so on it I saw um, you too and thank you thank you if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website, which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld. If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 03001233393. That's 03001233393. And they're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808. 802-5544. That's 0808-802-5544. And remember this, you are not alone. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Debbie McGee. And if you want to get involved with something new, then join us for Talking Strictly, the Telegraph's fabulous Strictly Come Dancing podcast. Every Monday we debate the highs and lows from the weekend shows and we are not afraid to say what we really think. Download us, it'll be fun. That's Talking Strictly, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 